The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. I don't know if you ever received those emails where um, someone is emailing you from a small country in Africa asking for help, you know, like they went over there to feed orphans and they got mugged and their visa got stolen and uh, they need $300 so that they can come back to the U.S. and you're their last chance of hope, right? And then, of course, it says, this is not a scam, this is real. And you're thinking, why don't you really email someone that you know instead of a random person like me? Sometimes I get those strange emails with requests like that, and obviously some of those are just spam and you delete them. But this week I got a different email with a different request, I think a very authentic request. And I just want to read it to you. This is sent to me from someone who I'm not familiar with. I don't think they attend church here or have attended church here. Um, But this is how it goes. I'll just read it to you, and I'll change the names just to keep it anonymous. It says, Hello. I'm writing to you to ask if you and your church can pray and intercede for a very special person in my life. His name is Joe. And about five years ago, he walked away from our precious Jesus. He's a prodigal son in the truest sense, except for the fact that he hasn't, come, he hasn't yet come back to the Lord. I firmly believe in the power of prayer. I am begging our father to bring his son Joe home. But I also believe that the more people that pray, the more God will hear our cries and maybe the quicker he will act. Please fast and pray with me for Joe to love his Jesus and soon. This situation has brought me continual stress and despair every day. Thank you so much for your time and your continual prayers. You can hear in this petition, this request, this woman's desperation She has had a burden for this person, Joe. And she has prayed for him without ceasing, seeking that he would return to the Lord, that he would grow in his relationship with the Lord. My guess is if you're here today, there is someone like that in your life. Someone that burdens your heart. Someone that you think about a lot. Someone that consumes a lot of your thoughts that you think, I hope that they are doing well. I hope that they are growing. Maybe it is a child. If you're a parent, it is natural for you to pray for your your kids when they are young, when they are formidable, asking God, please lead them. Maybe you are an older parent and you have kids that have moved out of the house or gone on to college and you see some of the decisions they're making or they're on this great adventure and you're praying earnestly, God, help them. Maybe you're praying for a coworker or a friend or a neighbor. And maybe you don't quite have the words to pray to God. Maybe you aren't quite sure what to ask for in those situations. Well, today Paul shows us how we should pray for the saints. How we should pray for those who are struggling in their faith. Believers that have been saved by God but continue to move forward in their faith. If you would please open up to Colossians chapter 1. We will be looking at verses 9 through 14 today. If you're in the Red Bible, it is page 983. If you're in the Children's Bible, it's page 1456. Last week, we started looking at Paul's prayer for the Colossians, and it starts out with thanksgiving. And we learned how we should thank God. We learned the who, what, and why of thanksgiving. Do you remember? Who should we thank? 
God, always, right? The trail always leads back to God. He is the source of every blessing. What should we thank God for? Everything, right? Even the invisible blessings of God. The invisible, unshakable blessings of faith, hope, and love that he has poured out upon us. And the why of thanksgiving. Why should we give thanks to God? Because of the simple and glorious and victorious truth of the gospel, which we'll talk more about today. This week, we jump in midway through Paul's prayer. He has given thanks to God, and now he turns to petition God on behalf of the Colossians. Petitioning meaning he is making requests to God on behalf of the Colossians. And so as we look at this, what we'll see is not only how does Paul pray for the Colossians, but how we should pray for one another and how we should pray for the saints around the world. We're going to jump in mid-sentence, mid-thought, and it starts out saying, and so from the day we heard. And so I just want to give you a little bit of a description about what Paul's talking about here. Paul was in Ephesus. He was preaching for several years. A man came to Ephesus from Colossae, which is about 100 miles away, named Epaphras. He came to faith in Christ under the ministry of Paul, went back to Colossae to plant a church. Epaphras has come back to Paul now, and he has shared with Paul not only the troubles and trials that the Colossian church is going through, but the great things that the Holy Spirit is doing, how God is growing them in their faith. And so Paul is overjoyed that the gospel has taken root, and he responds by praying for them, by petitioning for them to God. Since that day, this is how Paul prayed for them. And my hope is that this would be our prayer for one another. So let's read Colossians 1, verse 9 through 14. Verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for his endurance and patience with joy. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Lord God, as we come again to your word and I see what it means to pray, what we see and it means to petition for one another, to pray for one another, God. We confess that so much of our prayer life is selfish. So much of our prayer life is consumed with us, God. Help us, Lord. Free us from a selfish prayer life. Free us to pray for the saints around us. Help us, as Paul is doing, to pray for saints that we have never met before, God. Teach us this morning how we might pray for one another. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So, how should Christians pray for one another? Well, first off, the assumption is that we should pray for one another, right? And I think many of us would discover that's kind of an area that we can grow in. But one of the things that will help us grow in our prayer life is to understand how we should pray for one another. And so how should we pray for one another? If I were to put it in one word, I would say we should pray for increase. We should pray for increase. Paul prays that the work that God has started 
and the Colossian believers that it would increase, that his work, God's work in their life would increase. Paul is praying against stagnation. He's praying against complacency and apathy. And Paul is praying for God to increase three things in their lives. He's praying for God to increase their knowledge. He's praying for God to increase their might. And he's praying for God to increase their joy. And so we're going to look at those three things, knowledge, might, and joy, and see how we might pray for one another. First, pray for increased knowledge. Verse 9. If you have your Bibles, keep them open. Verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. In this short verse, Paul, in three different ways, prays for intelligence. He uses the word knowledge. He uses the word wisdom. He uses the word understand, under, excuse me, understanding. Today, we might use these words a little bit interchangeably, but for Paul, they were a little bit unique, and the uniqueness is important to see. And so what I want to do is briefly go through and kind of define these three and then come back and illustrate how they work together, okay? So the first thing Paul prays for is knowledge. It's thelematos is the Greek form of that word. And simply, it is knowledge of God's will, knowledge of the scriptures, knowledge of who God is and what he demands from us. This was important in Colossae today because the church is surrounded by lots of good-sounding but false teaching. Those who would undercut and undermine the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so to know what is true helps us distinguish when we hear a teacher. You know, this morning you come and you hear me teaching, but my hope is, is that you would know the word of God so that you might filter what is true and what is untrue. Our desire for knowledge is a good thing. Here at Jacob's Well, one of our chief commitments is expository preaching. This simply means that we teach through the Bible. We don't skip verses. We go through the entire book of Colossians, no matter how uncomfortable parts of it are, that our knowledge might be conformed to God's knowledge. We believe that all scripture is breathed out by God and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. As the Apostle Paul said in Acts 20, we do not shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God. The second word is Sophia, which means wisdom. This is a general wisdom. Wisdom is knowledge applied. So not only do you know the content of the Bible, but you understand how it applies to life. Knowledge becomes wisdom when you can take the eternal truth found in Scripture and apply it to real life. That's Sophia. So there's knowledge, there's wisdom, and the final thing he says is understanding. Now this is a use of understanding that we maybe do not use today. The way that he describes understanding is it is a wisdom applied to a particular case. And so how do we, knowing the Word of God and having wisdom from the Word of God, discipline a disobedient child? How do we, having the knowledge of the word of God and wisdom of the word of God, help a person that asks for food on the street? And so our understanding grows out of wisdom, which comes out of 
knowledge. Now, just a brief aside before I illustrate how these work together is, you'll notice here is that there's a descriptive word that's given to wisdom and understanding that isn't given to knowledge. And it's the word spiritual, that we would have spiritual wisdom and understanding. This means that a person with any belief structure could have knowledge of the Bible, right? They could know the gospel intellectually. They could know who Abraham was intellectually. They could, they could win a Bible trivia game. But Paul wants our knowledge to go beyond that and for the Spirit to give us wisdom and to give us understanding to apply what we understand in Scripture to our daily life. So how do these work together? Knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. Well, let me start with a silly illustration. Then I'll give you a little more serious one. How many of you have ever seen the movie Supersize Me? Anyone? Anyone seen it? Not as many as I had thought. What it's about is basically just how unhealthy food is at McDonald's, okay? So how many of you who have seen the movie Supersize Me could actually sit down and explain to me why I shouldn't eat at McDonald's, why that food is unhealthy, right? Probably all of you could because you have the knowledge and you have the wisdom that you could communicate. Now, how many of you are willing to admit that even though you've seen the movie and you have the knowledge and you have the wisdom, you still eat at McDonald's? Right? All right, thank you for being brave. What does that mean? According to Paul, that means we lack understanding. All right? We have knowledge that it's bad. We have wisdom. We could communicate it to someone else, but we lack understanding. We continue to go back time and time and time again because those French fries are just so good. Paul isn't talking about nutritional knowledge, he's talking about a much more important knowledge. Knowledge of God's will. Knowledge which leads to spiritual wisdom and spiritual understanding for a particular situation. Now let me give you a little more serious example. Growing up, I had a friend on my baseball team. His name was Jay. And Jay had a a mom and a dad, like most kids. And uh, Jay's mom and dad were Christian counselors, Christian marriage counselors, all right? And so it was always kind of funny being around them and seeing how they interacted and things like that. They used to communicate with people. They would know the word of God. They knew that God hates divorce. They know that what what God has joined together, let no man separate. And yet during the middle school years, Jay's parents got a divorce. See, they had the knowledge, they had the wisdom, but they didn't seem to have the understanding enough to apply it to their own lives. And so that's how these work together. Paul prays for increased knowledge, but he prays for this increased knowledge, not that it would remain knowledge, but that it would become real, that it would be practical, that we would live it out in wisdom and understanding. Now, we see verse 9 naturally flows into verse 10. Verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Something that we throw around here a little bit at Jacob's Well is called the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is a summary of the theology and scripture. And the first question is, what is the chief end of man? And the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And that's what we see here in this passage Paul is saying that he prays for knowledge, that we might have wisdom, that we might have understanding. Why? That we might glorify God. So as to walk in a manner, to live in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good 
work. But it doesn't end there. Paul not only hopes that we would glorify God, but that we would enjoy God. He says, by increasing in the knowledge of God. Increasing in the knowledge of God. Not increasing in the knowledge of God's will, but he desi- his desire is that we would increase in the knowledge of God, in the enjoyment of God, increase in our relationship with God. This means when we know the will of God and understand the will of God and practice the will of God, not only will we glorify God, but we will enjoy the person of God. Some of you may remember the old movie Chariots of Fire in which Eric Little is trying to express to his sister why he is running. And he says to her, I run because when I run, I feel God's pleasure. What Eric is saying is that when he runs to give glory to God, he senses the pleasure of God and it pleases him as well. The Apostle Paul wants us to desire earnestly, not slavishly, but earnestly to please God, to gain pleasure from pleasing him. But the only way we can please God is to know what God desires of us and to follow it with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So how should we pray for the saints? How should we pray for our children? How should we pray for those around the world? We pray for increased knowledge of God's will, that they might walk worthy of the Lord, pleasing him and growing in their knowledge and enjoyment of him. Secondly, we pray for increased strength. Now, I know that first main point, it kind of sounds formulaic, right? It kind of sounds easy to do. I just need to read the Bible and understand what it says. And then I need to put it into practice and and God will be pleased with me and I will enjoy God. But all of us know that is much more difficult than that, isn't it? Uh, We just read earlier in Romans chapter 7, and we'll read it again in a minute, that Paul knew the will of God. Paul knew what God wanted, but it was so hard for him to do. See, we don't just need knowledge of what is right. We need the strength to do it, don't we? Verse 11, Paul starts out saying, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Paul is praying for might to live a life worthy of the Lord. This is a high, difficult, impossible calling to live a life worthy of Jesus Christ. In Romans 7, again, Paul puts it this way, and I abbreviated it a little bit, but Paul says this, for I have the desire to do what is right. He knows what's right, and he even has the desire to do it, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, But the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul is saying, I know what is right. I know what is true, but I still do what is wrong because I do not have the power to do the things I know that are good. Who will rescue me from this? And then he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Colossians 1 is saying the exact same thing using a little bit different words. Paul is praying for increased strength. Paul is praying that Colossians would not only have the knowledge of right and wrong, but the strength to carry it out. Now, where does that power come from? Where do we get 
the strength to live in a manner worthy of God. Well, it's from his glorious might. Just stepping back and looking at this verse. This might be a verse that you have become familiar with, but this is an audacious prayer of Paul. Paul is praying to God that we might be strengthened with God's power. That his power that created all things and sustains all things, that his power that split the Red Sea and stopped the raging sea, that his power that raised Christ from the dead and ascended him into heaven where he now reigns, that that power might increase in our own hearts that we might be able to have the strength and power to do that which we know we should do. Why? So that we might please him, walk worthy of our calling, and enjoy him. Paul goes on. He says, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance, which means persisting in the pursuit of holiness, and patience, which can be translated long-suffering with joy. What do you need the power of God for in your life? Anyone need patience? <laughs> Anyone? You might be thinking, man, this sermon's going long. I need patience right now. <laughs> Anyone, need pa- Anyone got a roommate or married or kids? Anyone need power for patience? Anyone need power for long-suffering, for, for enduring the suffering of resisting sin and pursuing God? Anyone need the power of God to break an addiction in your life? Anyone need the power of God to break a bad attitude? Anyone need the power of God to forgive someone else? I think when we scratch below the surface, we can see very quickly that our efforts have come up short and that we need the power of God. I heard a story once of a boy who fell into a river and he went over the, um, the waterfall, and he got down to the bottom, and the current pushing him under was, was so strong, and he struggled to swim up and to, to gasp for air. And the people that were on the bank saw him getting up and gasping for air, and finally he lost the battle, and he drowned. Shortly after he was plunged under, about 20 seconds, he was pushed by the current out down the river where he surfaced. You see, if the boy wanted to live, all he had to do is stop exerting his own power. All he had to do was surrender himself to the greater power, to surrender himself to the power of the current. How do we access the power of God to live for the glory of God? Well, it starts by giving up, by giving up on your own strength and on your own power. Haven't you tried that for years? And how's it working? Doesn't that same sin come back time and time again? That same attitude that you don't want? We need power in us greater than us. We need the power of God. You know, it's amazing in the 12-step program for Alcoholics Anonymous or other addiction programs, maybe you know the first two steps. It's this very thing. Step one, you must admit that you're powerless. Step two, you must rely on a power greater than yourselves to restore you. Once you discover and once you admit that your power is inadequate, it is then and only then that you can resign yourself to the power of God. The power of God is available for you if you are in 
Christ. There is no sin in you that God cannot conquer with his power. And so we see Paul praying for the saints. He prays for increased knowledge, but he also prays for increased power to live out that knowledge. Finally, Paul prays for increased joy. This past Friday was Valentine's Day, and I'm hoping all of you men treated your wives very well. Um, I'm guessing uh, for Valentine's Day, what did we do, Trish? I think I went sledding with my brother, right? So <laughs> I'm guilty. But, but if, you're, if, you know, if your husband takes you out on a date, um, you probably don't want him to do it because he has to, right? Or because he is supposed to. Or because he should do it. You want your husband to take you out on a date because he loves you. All of us want a joyful lover. We don't want a begrudging lover, do we? Someone who delights in our relationship with them. God is no different. Verse 11, he says this, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Now how can we have joy in the midst of trying to be patient? In the midst of relying upon him for endurance, how can we have joy? Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father. God does, want, does not want your begrudging obedience. God wants your heart. God wants you to follow him in those difficult times with great joy. Now you may ask, how can we follow God with joy in the most difficult times of our life when we are enduring hardship and long suffering? Well, Paul tells us that the way that we can have joy is to know and understand and thank God for all that he has done in our lives. Give joyful thanks because God has worked in your life. There are three things that Paul points out here that God has done for you if you are in Christ. First, we should give joyful thanks because God has qualified us for riches. Verse 12, give thanks to God the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Most of the times, qualification is based on our performance and our ability, right? Our understanding. And so, you know, when you go for a job interview, for some reason, they want you to be qualified, right? To hold the job. You know, if you try out for a sports team, they have tryouts to see if you're qualified to play on the sports team. If you're trying to get in college, they have SATs and ACTs to see if you're qualified to get into this college. Even right now at the Olympics, I don't know if you are watching, but they have a qualifying round going on in almost every sport in which they're seeing, are you good enough to make it to the next level? You qualify by surpassing a certain standard according to your own abilities and performance in all of these areas, but it is different with God. You see, God has a standard too. God has a standard to qualify you for the inheritance of the saints. And his standard is absolute sinless perfection. And unlike a job or a college or an athletic team, you cannot qualify yourself because you are not perfect. God's standard is perfection for imperfect people. And we in and of ourselves disqualify ourselves from this heavenly inheritance, leaving us in a state of absolute despair. But the good news, 
the joyful news, the news that can give us great rejoicing, even in the midst of trials, is that even though we do not qualify, God has qualified us. He has qualified us by sending his own son, Jesus Christ, to live the life we should have lived, to live absolute perfection, and then apply it to us, to credit us with his righteousness. God has qualified us when we were unqualified to share in the inheritance of the saints. And so that's one thing that God has done for us that gives us great joy. The second thing that God does is that he has delivered us from the dominion of darkness. Verse 13 says that very simply. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred, actually translated us to the kingdom of his beloved son. The picture that is being painted here is the picture of the Exodus. Do you remember the Exodus from the Old Testament? When the people of God are enslaved in Egypt, they're underneath the tyranny of Pharaoh. They're slaves in this land. It's a horrible life in which they are persecuted. And yet God comes and God intervenes and delivers them out of slavery, transfers them out of that kingdom into the promised land, into the kingdom of God. God has delivered us once again. God has sent his own son, Jesus, into the world. Jesus is the light of the world. And yet at the cross, when Christ is hanging on the cross, darkness overshadows the land for three hours. Why? Because he's taking on your darkness and my darkness. That we might be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. So we can have joy in long-suffering because God has qualified us. He has delivered us, but also because God has redeemed us. Verse 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Redemption was a term used in that day uh, in talking about purchasing a person out of slavery. They would be redeemed if you would set forth the price to purchase them out of slavery. Slavery was something that was common in Colossae. It's not the same type of slavery that we think of in American history. Usually it's due to some sort of indebtedness in someone's past. But they would be in slavery, and then other people would come, and uh, if you were lucky, someone would redeem you. They would purchase you out of slavery. What we see here is that Paul tells us that when we were unable to redeem ourselves, God redeemed us. He forgave us our debts. There's a story of a late czar, Nicholas of Russia, who sometimes would walk around military camps dressed in ordinary officer clothing. And he would go around just to sort of get a sense and a feel of what was going on with his soldiers. Well, late one night, the czar was making his rounds and he saw a light on underneath a door. And so he quietly snuck in that door and he looked around the corner and he saw a young officer asleep on the desk. He was about to rebuke him, but then he waited and he looked and he saw what was on the table. He saw a gun on the table and he saw a sheet that had listed out all of this man's debt from all of his gambling. And then the czar Nicholas recognized the young boy as one of the sons of one of his very good friends and his heart grew compassionate for him. He looked at the sheet And at the bottom of all of the expenses from all of his gambling debts, he wrote in big letters, who can pay so great a debt? Who can pay so great a debt? Nicholas picks up the pen and he writes right below that question, Nicholas. 
Nicholas. Nicholas can pay that debt. When the man woke up, he was planning on ending his life, and yet he saw written there the word Nicholas. He got very excited. He quickly pulled out some other documents with Nicholas's name, and sure enough, it was a match. Joy and shame filled his heart as he thought of the fact that the czar knew all about his dishonesty, all about his reckless spending, and yet was willing to pay his debt. The following morning, the money came and paid the entire debt. Looking at your own life, looking at your own shame, looking at the word of God, the law of God, I don't think any of us can honestly say that we have obeyed the God completely, even for a single hour. Maybe not, not even for a single minute, joyfully. Who could pay so great a debt? The wages of sin is death. Who could pay so great a debt? Only God can. Only God can, who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come down. And Jesus came and he paid it all, just like we sang earlier. Jesus paid it all. God has ransomed us to himself. He has redeemed us. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness, and he has qualified us for the great inheritance. Let me end with this story. John Knox was a famous pastor, theologian. He founded the Presbyterian Church in Scotland, and he was fading. He was dying, and he couldn't get out of bed, couldn't see very well, And he called out to his wife to come and start reading him some scripture. So she came, and she started to read to him. And it just so happened that she started to read the prayers of Jesus. John was so inspired by those prayers that he lost track of his wife, and he told her to stop reading. And then he started to pray. He started to intercede. He prayed for the ungodly, those who had rejected the gospel. He pleaded on behalf of the people who had been recently converted that they would grow in grace. And he requested protection for the Lord's servants who were being persecuted. As Knox was praying, he drifted off and met the Lord. What amazes me about Knox is that even in his dying breath, even when he couldn't walk, even when he probably couldn't talk, He was still ministering through prayer. We have a tremendous opportunity to minister, to be ministers of prayer, to pray for the people of God, to pray that God would increase them, that he would increase their knowledge, that he would increase their strength, that he would increase their joy, knowing that he has qualified us for a great inheritance, that he has delivered us from the dominion of darkness, and that he has redeemed us, forgiving our sins. This is how we should pray for one another. Who has God burdened your heart with? Would you be faithful? Would you pray that God might increase in their lives? Let's pray. Lord, we all need increase, God. We all need increased understanding of your word, God that we might know what is true and what is false. We need increased strength, God, to, to, to follow what we know is true, Lord. And we need increased joy. 
that our eyes would not be fixed on our sin and on our shame, but it would be fixed on the finished work of Christ at the cross. It would be fixed on what you have done for us, that you have redeemed us, that you have qualified us, and that you have delivered us. God, give us great joy in all our trials because we have a great God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.